Thank you, David. There's not much question about Jesus' love for us. It's uh, extraordinary. The question this morning is, what place does he hold in our hearts? Where is his place in our hearts? Would you like to be famous? I mean, really, would you like to walk into a strange place and people come up to you and say, hey, aren't you so-and-so? I just love that thing that you do. I'm I'm not talking about Tiger Woods famous or Britney Spears. Well, I hope you don't want to be Britney Spears famous. But but just well-known, you know, where people know you outside of your circle of friends. Whether you would like to be famous or not, the older you get, the more you recognize that there are a lot of problems that go with that. Nonetheless, we are teaching our children that to be famous is something to be highly prized. And if you can't be famous, at least you can know somebody famous. And somehow that connection enhances your life. I heard Jake Halpern being interviewed this week about America's shift in its worship of God to worship of celebrity. You know old Jake Halpern, don't you? Uh, and Thank you, I thought so. In, in 2007, he wrote Fame Junkies, the hidden truths behind America's favorite addiction. Halpern conducted a survey in, in different schools across the country that were representative of of where high school students are. And the students were asked uh, this question, which profession would you choose if you could be any of the following, which would you take? CEO of a Fortune 500 company, president of Harvard or Yale, Navy SEAL, assistant to a star, or U.S. senator. Can you guess which one they chose? Assistant to a star. Not a star, but a a water carrier for a star. Especially girls. Girls chose being assistant to a star two to one over U.S. Senator, three to one over President of Harvard or Yale, and four to one over being CEO of a Fortune 500 company. In the same interview, Halpern referred to an ongoing survey among American teenagers called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory in which students were asked, if they are, are you important? That's just the question. Are you important? In the 1950s, 12% said yes. By the late 80s, 80% said yes. And Halpert surmised that while it's a good thing for teenagers to think that they're important, perhaps we've overshot the mark and we have moved from self-esteem to narcissism. You think that he's right? The worst thing you can do for your children is to let them be the center of everybody's universe around them. The absolute worst thing you can do for children is to let them be the center of their and your universe. You know, in a society increasingly, of individuals increasingly looking for their place in the sun, for their 15 minutes of fame, really for their whatever time they've got left of fame. There's little place for an exalted Savior. How are we going to exalt Jesus to the place that He needs to be when we're so worried about what people think of us? Now, lip service is paid to Jesus, but really, does He have the priority that He needs, even in the church? Even in the church. 
He certainly has the exalted status in all of creation that knows the deal right now is in the spirit world. Everybody knows Jesus' position in the spirit world. And the scriptures tell us, and we believe that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. (laughs) This morning we're going to read from Colossians chapter 1 where we're told that Jesus is preeminent over all creation. He is famous in all of creation. Just before we read, though, would you take a moment? You don't have to, you don't have to close your eyes. I'm not going to say close your eyes, bow your head. But just in your heart, would you just ask the Lord to take away this desire that you have to be famous and well-known and well-respected and just to have your place in the sun and ask Him to replace it with a love for Jesus and a willingness to exalt, a desire to exalt Him to the place And he belongs in our lives. Would you do that? Well, we're going to be reading in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 23. Our focus is going to be last half of this passage, but as is so often the case, we'll read a larger section for context. Last week, we learned about the the position of authority that God the Father has in the Godhead. And we'll see some of that this morning as we go through our, our text, but we'll also see how it was the Father's plan to exalt the Son and give Him this place uh, in the spotlight, in the light, in all of creation. So would you please stand as we read Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 23. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you is indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a worthy manner of the uh, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, this morning, open our hearts and open our minds to the condition of our hearts. Father, may Jesus be put in the place of priority in our hearts and our minds and our lives that he deserves. May your word pierce our thoughts and our, our emotions this morning and cause us to look to the one, the famous one, who is above all, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. How many Sundays do you think we could spend talking about Jesus, about God the Son? Let me rephrase that. How many years do you think we could spend talking about Jesus? There is absolutely no possible way that we can say everything that needs to be said in one morning. We're going to let our text today guide us, be, be our primary guide for thinking about who Jesus is. But with a subject so vast, we'll need to bring a few others in also. We're going to be concentrating on three facets of this wonderful one that we call God the Son. And I think you're going to find that all three areas are important areas. But I know if you're thinking deeply about this series on the Trinity, and I, I certainly hope you are, you might be thinking, well, wonder why I didn't talk about this. I would really like to spend some time here or there. It'll help if you just think about this in context of, of the whole series. We've already talked some, and there's a lot more to come about Jesus in the days to come. But this morning, our focus is in Colossians 1, particularly verses 15 through 23. Uh, for this morning's content, I can only apologize and claim limited time, but I probably should quit talking about limited time and get to it. So this morning, the the first aspect of Jesus that we want to consider is his nature. Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. You'll recall several weeks ago when we talked about the history of this doctrine of the Trinity, how in the early church that people just had difficulty accepting this notion that God is 100% or Jesus is 100% God and he's 100% man. It, it's not that, that people thought, well, maybe it's kind of a 50-50 proposition. It wasn't that at all. It's just that how can he be both? He's got to be one or the other. It's just not logical for him to be 100% God 100% man. The first response to that is it's not logical, but that doesn't matter. God's understanding his thoughts, his ability to, to comprehend, and certainly just who he is is so far greater than anything that will ever make sense to us. That doesn't mean, though, that he left us to just say, well, okay, that's it. I believe it. Doesn't matter what else. Scripture gives us more than enough information, ample evidence to enable us to form 
our beliefs about God, even though it's something that's difficult for us to get our minds around. Our text in Colossians speaks mostly to Jesus' divinity. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And, you know, I thought about this when I was preparing the message. Somebody asked me about it after the first service, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I didn't put anything in the notes about this. The firstborn of all creation doesn't mean that he was created. It just means that he has the rights of the firstborn, those rights of inheritance. And we'll talk about him being man a little bit later. But I wanted to say that lest I forget it later. He is the image, we're told, of the invisible God. Now, it was understood in the Old Testament that to see God face to face is to die. You just can't handle His glory. In fact, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. You remember what the response was. You can't handle it. And it wasn't said in the Jack Nicholson voice either, <laughs> as I was tempted to try to do just now. But he said, you, you, you're not able to contain. If you see my glory, you'll die. So I'll just show you a little part as I pass by. Now, we're told that Moses spoke to the Lord face to face, but we, we, we understand that clearly to be symbolically, not literally. So if it's impossible to see God and live, what does he look like? Well, Ezekiel had a vision of God. Chapter 1, he records it in the first chapter of the book that bears his name. And it was a very mysterious, murky kind of a vision. There was a form, somewhat of a form of a human. There was a waste anyway that he discerned. But above, above and below, there were all of these incredible sights that that just blew his mind, and he, he really never could get a handle on. He just said it's kind of, it's, it's very holy, I can tell you that. John had a very similar vision in Revelation 4 of God the Father. We know for a fact that, well, we're almost certain that Revelation chapter 4, John is seeing God the Father. Once again, the image was murky in the difference between the Father and John, the distance, I mean between John and the Father was all too evident. There was a sea and there was an indication of just, you're back here, God is here. It's that transcendence we talked about a couple of weeks ago, how God is just so far above us. You can't really get your mind around who He is. You can't really understand fully who He is, who the Father is. Now, Isaiah's vision of, of God in the sixth chapter, you remember that, where he said, I was in the temple, and all of a sudden the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and his train filled it. Everything, it was just full of God, and there were these angels, seraphim and, and, and cherubim, that were flying around. Well, John tells us that Isaiah was seeing Jesus. John chapter 12, it tells us that Isaiah was seeing Jesus. So, God the Father, most likely in Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4, but Jesus was the, the, the glorious God that Isaiah saw. And yet, Jesus came to earth and lived here amongst all of us, as one of us. He was the image of the invisible God, which means He was the exact representation of God, but in a form, human to be exact, that we could stand. He came as one of us so as to reveal Himself to us, but in such a way that we would be able to grasp it. We would not fall in terror like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John all did when they saw God. Now we can see Him. 
Colossians 3.17 tells us that he was before all things. In other words, he was co-eternal. He never had a beginning. He existed with God the Father from eternity past. Verse 19 informs us that he embodies all the fullness of God. He wasn't a partial deity as some of the heresies that we have talked about purport, but all of God is in Jesus. Indeed, remember last week when we were reading from John 14 and he had that conversation with Philip and Philip said, Jesus, Lord, just show us the Father. You keep talking about the Father. Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, Philip, you don't get it, do you? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I want to say something that I know that others will disagree with. As far as I can see in Scripture, Jesus is the only face of God we'll ever see in eternity. John's vision in in Revelation 4 indicates that we'll be aware of God the Father's presence, but can we really get a grip on who He is? It could be. There may be. I mean, Scripture doesn't tell us everything about what eternity is going to be like. But as far as I can infer from what is there, we won't really get a handle on God the Father's appearance. No one ever questions who Jesus is. Never have, never will. Everybody knows when Jesus is there. They, they, his opponents when He was on earth, those who worshipped Him, followed Him, all the spirit world, everybody knows who Jesus is. He will be recognizable to all creation. In fact, He restricts the fullness of His glory so that we can approach Him. In addition to Isaiah's terror when he saw Jesus, John, the Apostle John, you remember in Revelation chapter 1 when he was caught up into heaven and he saw Jesus in all of His glory? You remember what he did? He fell as one dead. He fell on his feet as though he were dead. Now who, what kind of relationship did John and Jesus have on the earth? Best friends. At least that's the way John records it. And it's scripture, so we have to agree that John, remember he was the one who laid his head on Jesus' breast at the the Last Supper. Had the place of of a priority in Jesus' circle at the Last Supper. And yet, he's the when he sees Jesus in all of his glory, he falls as though he's dead. Jesus mercifully holds back the effulgence of his glory, the brilliance, the radiance of his glory in order that we might commune with him. So Jesus is 100% God. Was he, when he was on earth, 100% man? Philippians 2, 6-8 says yes. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is just another one of those deals. There, there's no way to go into all the details of this passage. You may recall we had a rather lengthy and technical two or three sermons about this particular passage back in May of last year. You can access it online if you want to. And 
And I can send you an email with uh, some, a study guide that goes along with those messages if you're interested. But the truth we want to glean here this morning is that though Jesus was every bit as much God as the Father was and is, Jesus was and is as much God as the Father was and is, He did not hang on to His privileges, to His position of glory, but He willingly put aside some of the privileges that he had and in humility became a man and lived his entire life in obedience to the Father. This this passage is not saying that Jesus gave up his divinity or his godness, his being God, but rather he took on human flesh, which means that he had to give up some of the privileges that he had as a part of the Godhead. That's why Luke tells us that as a boy, Jesus grew in his mind as well as his body. I used to think that when Jesus was a a babe in the manger, that he knew we'd be talking about this subject on this day. I don't believe that anymore. I think Jesus willingly came as a baby who didn't know anything. And he grew in wisdom, knowledge and wisdom as well as in body. Jesus willingly limited the use of some of his divine attributes to the leadership of the Father and the power of the Spirit for the purpose of identification with humanity. Just think about the implications of that. You will if you go to home fellowship this week. You'll think about them much more personally. Consider how different Jesus is than we are. Adam was a human who sought to be God. Jesus existed as God, yet chose to unite himself with humanity. That's what it means that Jesus emptied himself. It's the essence of the incarnation, a union of perfect humanity and undiminished deity. Every bit as much God as he was when he was in heaven with the Father in spirit before the world ever even began. But now, a perfect human. Jesus added a human body to his glorious self. And that's entirely different. When we think about adding something, when we add something, it means an increase. But for the eternal word, the Son, adding a human nature involved a process of emptying himself putting certain parts of him aside. A human nature, that that raises so many questions about Jesus' sinlessness. Does the virgin birth ensure that Jesus was sinless? Well, it does if sin is only transmitted through the Father. But Mary was sinful. The Catholics got that. They said, you know, we've got a problem here. And so, here's the way we'll solve this problem. Unless Mary was sinless, then we still got a pro- Jesus is still sinful. And so, they said, she wasn't. God miraculously kept her from sinning. So that when she conceived the Lord, it's really the, the virginal conception, not the virginal birth that's the big deal. When she, when Jesus was conceived, since she was sinless, 
Then Jesus was perfect when he was born. Problem is, that's not what the Bible teaches. I'm going to put what I'm going to say on the screen. If you want to try to write it, it's very important stuff. It's very, for some of you, yeah, 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 I know all of that. Most of you are probably going to say, yes, that's kind of heavy stuff. You can access it next week online if, you, if, you, if you're interested. We'll give it a shot anyway. We do not receive our sin nature, our sinful nature, genetically, but representatively. We don't receive it because Adam and Eve were our ancestors, but because Adam is our federal head or he is the representative of the entire human race. And so when he sinned, we all sinned with him. But Jesus isn't a member of Adam's race. And the virgin birth does speak to that. Jesus is the second Adam and he conquers sin. In a sense, this is a very... Simple, if not simplistic way of saying it. It was almost like a do-over. Adam was created perfectly. Adam and Eve were perfect when they were created. But they sinned and messed everything up. So the second Adam came and got it right. And conquered sin. It was necessary for Jesus to have not only a human body, but a human soul in order to meet the requirements necessary to be a perfect substitute for our sin. Because what is, who are we as a person? Is it just this body? No, it's who we are inside that makes us a person. So Jesus had to have a human soul. And it had to be a perfect human soul in order to be a substitute for our sin. Well, I've spent the, almost the entire time on this first point. There's, there's just no way to tell you how difficult it was to try to figure out what to say. Really, it was to figure out what not to say, which is overwhelming amount of information. I, I do want to briefly, and I do mean briefly, consider two more thoughts from our text in Colossians 1 about Jesus. The first of which is that Jesus is the preeminent one in the universe. Our text says so very plainly in verses 15 to 20. This was the Father's will. Jesus was the agent of creation. He was the creator. All thing, things that exist were created by Jesus, or at least, at the very least, through Jesus. He is the sustainer. If Jesus didn't hold, does, didn't hold the universe together, it would be done immediately. It, w- it would be over. He is redeemer. Verse 20 says so, even though it's not not on the screen. Jesus rescues us from eternal punishment. He does so through the literal blood of His literal body that was nailed to the cross as a perfect substitute. The only one eligible to absorb the judgment of God that was directed toward us because of our sin. So we come to this place almost every Sunday at some point. that All of Scripture, all of our lives are about the gospel in one way or another. And the gospel is this. You can never be good enough to get to heaven on your own. You just can't. And it's not not with a little help. You know, I get by with a little help from the Spirit. That's not it either. You, we must have someone to pay the price, to pay the penalty for which we were responsible because of what we've done. Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, 
as God and man at the same time, when he died on the cross, he paid for those sins. So, do you know Jesus as your Savior? If not, let me encourage you, please, ask him to forgive your sins. Believe what Jesus did on the cross for you and ask him to save you. He will accept you immediately. Embrace you. Immediately. See, there's the ironic thing. He's the preeminent one in the universe. And his love for us is incredible, as David sang about earlier. All of his attention is focused on you. That's how much he loves you. But you've got to say yes to him. You've got to say yes. Jesus is also head of the church you know, today we're going to vote on an amendment to our Constitution about the terms of elders. Let me tell you that the elders recognize very, very clearly that this is not our church. No elder thinks this is my church. In fact, I don't know if one that's ever thought that, that served as an elder here in the history, in, in, in the long and storied 15-year history we have here at Grace Community Church. You know, we verbally acknowledge that at, at, at almost every meeting, that Jesus, this is your church and we're stewards. This is, this is your church. We want to do your will. And really what we're not saying, but what we mean is we don't want to mess it up because we're entirely capable. Does that mean that we get it right every time? No, because there was only one perfect human. And while we acknowledge his presence, he does his business through us, and sometimes we get a little bit confused about that. But you have to know that there's not one elder who takes his responsibility as steward of Jesus' church lightly. And they didn't tell me to say that either. But it's not just the elder's responsibility. It belongs to all of us to make Jesus preeminent at Grace Community Church. And, and let's just bring that into more of a contemporary vernacular and make Jesus famous in our hearts, minds. Christianity, if you're ever asked on a form anymore, it's not politically correct to do it, but just in case there's, you get some old school form and they ask you, what's your religion? You'll put Christianity. Think about what that implies. It ain't just about God. It's about Jesus there are a lot of people who love to talk about God and yet are reticent to utter Jesus' name. The temptation for the believers at Colossae was to remain spiritual, but not just, just not make such a big deal about Jesus. They had been told, just been told in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the preeminent one in all of creation and that the entire universe will recognize that. He identified with us. Now we need to proudly identify with him. Verse 23 comes across a little differently in the Greek translation than it does in our English translations. Uh, Paul wrote this verse in such a way as to say, I am confident that you're going to remain with Jesus. In, in the English, it almost sounds like, all right, you're going to be connected with him if you stay, but you better be careful. Now, don't walk away. 
that's not what Paul was expecting. He didn't expect them to turn away from Jesus. Indeed, to renounce Jesus is to indicate that one never had a relationship with him in the first place, right? Well, that's the easy interpretation of verse 23 for those of us who believe in eternal security. And that's correct. We talked about it last week. The Spirit is the earnest of our salvation. He is the, he is the guaranteed non-refundable down payment of our inheritance. Once you belong to Him, you will always belong to Him. But let's not miss the call in this verse to make Jesus preeminent in our lives. I mean, after all, what do Christ followers do? They follow Jesus. That won't be easy if we allow ourselves to be swept up in the current of our present day obsession with actors and athletes and politicians. God's call in our lives is for us to keep our focus on the preeminent one in all creation, the famous one. Let's pray.